1: Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. We are going to talk to Sid Ziegler, the founder of OutSports and the author of Fair Play, how LGBT athletes are claiming their rightful place in sports about the response by the sports world to the Orlando shootings. We are also going to play audio of a sermon I gave in Plymouth Congregational Church about Muhammad Ali, Orlando and the light of understanding. But first, Cleveland, the Cleveland Cavaliers, Believe Land, the Cleve, bringing it all back.
0: LeBron James, LeBron James, LeBron James, LeBron James, LeBron James, LeBron, James,
1: LeBron, James, LeBron James. Here's some choice words I wrote for Slam Magazine. I call this witnesses. Look, we've had NBA Finals MVPs who dedicated their victories through a mask of tears to their mothers, their fathers, and their hometowns. But we've never had an MVP say that he won the trophy as a statement of resistance against the ways that neoliberal deindustrialization and urban neglect has wrecked his team's city. A city that stands, however gingerly, a mere 20-minute drive from where he grew up. We've never had a player strap a team to his back in such a manner. Leading players on both teams in points, rebounds, assists, steals, and blocks. The first time that has happened in any NBA series ever. We have never seen someone willingly shoulder such a colossal burden. And then as the chorus of doubters reached a shrill fever pitch, a deliver. But that is exactly what LeBron James did. after leading Cleveland to an utterly improbable NBA title after being down three games to one against only the greatest regular season team in NBA history. When LeBron shouted, Cleveland, this one is for you, the context was unmistakable, and everyone knew exactly what he was talking about. It recalled his July 2014 open letter announcing his return to Cleveland after four years of mastering his talents in South Beach when he said, I feel my calling here goes above basketball. I have a responsibility to lead in more ways than one, and I take that very seriously. My presence can make a difference in Miami, but I think it can mean more where I'm from. I want kids in Northeast Ohio to realize that there's no better place to grow up. Maybe some of them will come home after college and start a family, open a business. That would make me smile. Our community has struggled so much, and it needs all the talent it can get. In Northeast Ohio, nothing is given. Everything is earned. You work for what you have, and I'm ready to accept the challenge. I'm coming home. Damn a superstar returned home, strapped the hopes, anxieties, and fears of a damaged city to his back and delivered. Now there's no more talk of the drought, the curse, or a city branded the mistake by the lake. There's no more talk of a 1964 NFL championship complete with grainy black and white footage as the city's last gasp of glory. Now there is just LeBron James, rebranding an entire hard scrabble town as a place that would not and could not be defeated, even when going up against a new age team playing in a new age city. Like Cleveland itself, the world had supposedly passed the Cavs by. Yet LeBron, like Christopher Reeve in that first Superman movie, flew quickly and powerfully enough like he was going for another of those iconic chase down blocks to turn the whole world backwards. No, it doesn't solve every problem. Cleveland is still hemorrhaging residents. Unemployment, poverty, and police brutality cannot be swept under the rug by one championship. But with this victory, we can see just what it was in LeBron's character that made him say as a rookie that his dream was to be a global icon like Muhammad Ali. He has always wanted to be more than a brand. He has always wanted to matter in a way beyond conspicuous consumption and highlight reels. I cannot wait to see what the next step is in this man's life, and that's not just about hoops, but my own curiosity about where his moral compass will take him. Wherever it is, I think we can say with confidence that it will be consequential. For this is truly a moment where, for once, the branding and the hype have still not caught up to the reality. We are all still witnesses.
0: I set out to go two so years. I came back. to the city. I gave everything that I had. I put my heart, my blood, my sweat, my tears to this game and against all odds, against all odds, I don't know why we want to take the hardest road. I don't know why the man above gave me the hardest road, but there's nothing the man above don't put you in situations that you can't handle. And I just kept that same positive attitude. Like, Instead of saying why me, they're saying this is what he want me to do.
1: Our guest this week, I'm so happy to say, is the co founder of Outsports and the author of what is an absolutely brilliant book that I reread for this show. i had read it before, I reread it, and I was really struck again by how great it is. It's called Fair Play How LGBT Athletes Are Claiming Their Rightful Place in Sports. His name is Sid Ziegler. Sid, how are you doing, sir?
2: You know, it's 107 here in LA, so I'm melting.
1: You're you know? melting. <laughs> <laughs> well, are are you melting even despite the fact that Cleveland won against Golden State, or because Cleveland won against Golden State? How's your uh, recovery from that game?
2: Look, I have been a LeBron James fan since he since since he went to Miami. When, when you see an athlete take your future and the control of your life into your own hands and not let other people control you, I, I've I've loved LeBron for years. So to see him do that to come back from the three to one, I just and to see Aisha Kari have to eat it, I just love it.
1: <laughs> I gotta say, I kept thinking of LeBron while I was reading your book, Fair Play, because one of the things you write about is the evolution of how athletes speak about LGBT people in the locker room. And I remember when a very young LeBron was asked about uh, John Amici's book, Man in the Middle, which you, you write about a lot of athletic reactions to that, um, his response was kind of halting. like it was, it was a weird response, if you remember. It was like, I have no problem with a gay teammate, but if they're hiding it, then I don't trust them. And you have to have people you can trust in the locker room, which is just yeah. like. And then, but since then, it's been it's been much better, much more of what you'd expect from someone who sees himself as a leader.
2: Well, to be honest, I I, I do remember his reaction. I thought it was super interesting that you know, if I have a gay teammate, I want to know. You know, as as a yeah. leader of the team, I want to have a hundred percent of everybody. I don't want there to be. Secrets and, and, and things like that. I remember back in the 70s, the NFL um, head of security talked about this, and he said, you know, our big issue with gay athletes is the potential for blackmail, because of course in the 70s they had to be closeted, and it was a, it was a big secret. So, you know, when you take away the secrets, it's unbelievable how how the team reacts, and teammates, and and the, and the LGBT athletes themselves. So, I was never uh, that upset with what LeBron said because. I think that honesty is power, and I think he was right back then.
1: Wow, that's a good point. And like so much in this book, Fair Play, like it, it has me thinking and rethinking a lot of my ideas about this issue. That's just, just another great point there, Sid. Um, but I'd like to talk to you more about Fair Play. But before we do, I really want to speak to you about Orlando, uh, of course, 49 people in the LGBT community uh, murdered at Pulse uh, by someone overpowered by or driven by his own horrific hatreds. And sports is really our most visible collective space that we have as a society. How do you feel like the sports world has responded to Orlando?
2: It's been powerful to watch so many teams and leagues and athletes have something to say and to see the use of the rainbow flag has been a reinforcement that LGBT people in our community are not totally invisible. And, you know, you wouldn't have seen a rainbow flag flying above Fenway oh. 20 years ago. So it's great that that is happening. But yeah, as I wrote last week on Outsports, it's been disappointing that people in sports seem to have a difficult time talking about specifically gay people and the LGBT community as the targets here and and say the words LGBT and gay and homophobia and lesbian and sexual orientation. And so I do think that while the sports world has come a long way in the last 20 years, I think there is still a discomfort, either a discomfort or just a lack of understanding about how important it is to say these words. You know, it's interesting to watch all of these Major League Baseball teams have these Pride Nights Mm -hmm. and they always call them Pride Nights or out at the park. Very very few of them, like the Dodgers call it the LGBT night, but very few of them say specifically gay or LGBT in the name of the event because people in sports, particularly in the front offices, are still kind of afraid of completely, fully, entirely embracing our community. Now after I wrote that column. A number of them did start using LGBT specifically. Mm -hmm. Um, Commissioner Manfred specifically talked about the LGBT community in his address last Friday. So I think that for a lot of them, they're still afraid to talk about it specifically. For a lot of people in sports, they just need to understand how important it is to say our words.
1: So, yeah, so let's engage in some conjecture here because this isn't like, pro sports teams are on the hard right on LGBT issues anymore. This isn't like, you know, Eric Erickson writing that it's divisive to use the word gay. Eric Erickson, right-wing troll from Red State, uh, you know, saying, you know, we shouldn't say it's a killing of gay people because that divides us as Americans. I'm sure you saw that <laughs> that, that that idiocy. I, I don't think either of us are saying that that's where these sports teams are coming from there. But is it insensitivity? Is it just not realizing how important it is? Or is this, and this is what my brain keeps coming back to, and I'd love for you to accept or reject this, is this about marketing executives being very comfortable with the pink economy but not feeling so comfortable with actual solidarity?
2: I think it's a mix of all of those things. We make a mistake in calling the sports world, or in talking about the sports world as this monolithic entity. It is not. Any particular league, I remember when we talked about Michael Sam, people said, oh, it proves the NFL is homophobic. Well, no. Every team in every league is a different entity and is run differently. So I do think that there are teams out there. Just take Major League Baseball specifically. I know that there's a team in Major League Baseball that is really rejecting the idea of having a pride night. I know this for a fact. Mm -hmm. People who are trying to organize have contacted me. And then I know on the flip side, there are the the Los Angeles Dodgers who go the extra mile in everything they do. So I I think it's a mix of things. And I do think that there is some conservative politics there. And I do think that there are some marketing executives who are afraid. But I think that ultimately, I think that your analysis is probably, if you're going to sum it all up, I think it's pretty spot on that, yes, we absolutely want to welcome LGBT people. We want to make them feel comfortable. We want their money. But we don't really want to go all the way. But again, there are certain teams that do. I mean, even the, I would criticize the the, the the Tampa Bay Rays for how they were handling it. And then they have this event on Friday that was incredible. So, you know, I, <laughs> I, I, I do think it's a mixed bag in all the sports.
1: Now, I know you don't believe in outing athletes, as you explain in detail in Fair Play. But do you believe in outing teams that don't want to do a Pride night?
2: Yes, um, but, uh, and, and we will, uh, uh, I just, you know, I, I have to work with the local community organizers. I mean, it, those gotcha. are the people who are on the ground and, 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 and they don't want that to happen quite yet.
1: They're still hoping for a good outcome. Very, very understandable. Indeed, talking to Sid Ziegler, author of Fair Play, how LGBT athletes are claiming their rightful place in sports. So there have been a lot of, of remembrances. I, I, would love to just to ask you, has there been any one sports remembrance of Orlando that has particularly touched you?
2: This weekend, the video that the Rays played during their Pride Night on Friday was, I got home very, 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 very late Saturday night and happened to see it on my phone and my husband and I were lying in bed crying oh. uh, uh, before we went to bed. It was, it was a song by Eli Lieb. Eli's an openly gay singer and he wrote a, a song called Feel My Pulse. It's incredible. So what the Rays ultimately did, they got it right.
0: Feel my pulse
1: With your hand on my heart You
0: know it beats just
1: as hard as yours Feel my pulse
0: uh oh, feel my pulse Can't you see that I'm Scott? I'm just the same as you are, so just feel
1: my pulse Uh I like let's take it now to, to fair play in the time we have left. Um, but before we talk about any of the content of the book, which I really do think is like hard-hitting, incisive, and I think anybody who has Any sort of desire to understand not just LGBT people in sports, but the psychology of the sports world broadly needs to read fair play. The first question I want to ask you is the same question I asked Martina Navratilova. After Jason Collins came out, Martina wrote a column in Sports Illustrated where she predicted, as she put it, that there would be an avalanche of athletes coming out now that Jason Collins had just broken that logjam. And that, of course, hasn't happened. Why do you think that hasn't happened?
2: You know, that is is the million-dollar question. And some people point to Michael Sam as why. Because, you know, Michael came out and ended up getting drafted by the Rams and playing well in the preseason and then just crickets after the Rams called him. And a lot of people say that, you know, that really hurt because – most people realize he should be on an NFL team, mm-hmm. but you know, I, I don't spend too much time trying to figure this out because fear is irrational. And I, I talk about this in the book that fear and love, they're the most powerful forces in our lives and they're the most difficult to explain because you can't explain emotion. You, I, I've been married to my husband for 13 years and I can tell you why that marriage works, I loved him the first moment I saw him. I I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with him before I even knew his name. It is totally irrational. And fear is irrational as well. And so, you know, different athletes... Some of them fear losing endorsement deals, right? So if you have like an, an, an Aaron Rodgers, right? If Aaron Rodgers were gay, they his fears of losing endorsement deals and his legacy and not winning MVPs. I think these irrational fears, if he came out of the closet, are completely different from a guy who's just trying to make a roster, who's just trying to earn an income, who fears that he might get cut or he might, you know, he might get overlooked for that 53rd spot on a roster. So, you know, it's hard to, to talk about, to explain why in one fell swoop, because every person is different and everybody's raised differently with different parents and different religions and different attitudes. But at the end of the day, it's just fear.
1: Mm. Now, you write in the book about the concept, the hope for a gay Jackie Robinson that exists in LGBT and LGBT allies circles, you know, that kind of trailblazing star. And you have a really interesting analysis of this that's, I think, very, very unique. You say that the gay Jackie Robinson has both already happened and never will happen. Can you explain that?
2: When Jackie Robinson entered Major League Baseball, the state of race relations in the United States was horrific. I mean, black people couldn't use certain bathrooms, couldn't sit in certain seats on a bus, couldn't vote in some states. I mean, and where we are with LGBT rights today is so much further along than that. None of us face those issues. Sure, we can argue about the use of certain bathrooms for trans people, and we can certainly talk about marriage, but we are just not where African-Americans were in 1947. So the idea of one, of one seminal sports figure coming along and changing everything, it can never happen the way it did with Jackie Robinson because of the state of LGBT rights today versus where we were with race in 1947. But at the same time, to me, Jackie Robinson is all of the athletes who have come along from Dave Cope in 1974, 75, the former NFL player who who decided to come out and really started the ball rolling, Uh, Martina and Billie Jean in the early 1980s, and all of the young high school and college athletes who have, some of them quietly and some of them not so quietly, lent their stories and their faces and their voices to this movement. That collection of all the athletes, particularly those young athletes, you know, we talk about, Jason Whitlock just wrote, uh, or just uh, talked last week about you know the the gay community absolutely needs some superstar to come out. I just totally disagree with that because mm-hmm. I feel like the younger kids have moved this along a lot further than just one person declaring he's gay.
1: Yeah, and you wonder it's like if that happens, who who would that be for at this point as well. I mean, especially since young people, the generation that's coming up that's going to be running this world they have a level of, of comfort and familiarity and an absence of labeling that I think we're, we, we were plagued with growing up around these issues, even in the most liberal circles.
2: We have the sports world and we as a country have come so far, so fast on LGBT issues. And again, we still have things we have to work out. But I, your your question is a great one. Who is that person going to change? I mean, LeBron James wins a championship yeah. and all of a sudden declares he's gay, I, it's a sensationalist story, but what mind is that actually going to change? I mean, I've been to Cleveland. I've been a staple on Cleveland sports radio for years. I have never felt a moment of anxiety or lack of welcoming in Cleveland. So your, your question is a great one. Who's left? I think the people who are left are kind of unchangeable.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things about your book that I really like is that it, it it puts forward. I know the original title of the book was "What I Saw at the Evolution," and which is I still stand by that. That's a great title. Um, but there there are these moments that, in our you know fast social media culture, really are important historically, but get forgotten because we're moving so quickly. We don't take the time to say, "Whoa, that." Really, really mattered. And one of the things that you wrote about in this book that caused me to stop in my tracks and just say, whoa, that really mattered was the story of Michael Irvin. I had forgotten about that. And I'm guessing my listeners don't know about that. story. can you tell the Michael Irvin story and why it mattered so much, particularly his behavior after doing what he did?
2: Yeah, I've known Michael since, I don't know, about 2008, I started doing his radio show on a regular basis, his his radio partner at the time, Kevin Kiley, um, I had worked with before, and, and I remember um, talking with Michael on the phone very early on, and he, he seemed a little, I don't know, just a little, he, he was wondering why on earth we'd have this gay guy on to come talk football. <laughs> And very quickly, he and I became friends, and, and, you know, he would call me, and he would text me, and he he really embraced me, and he embraced my husband, Dan. Uh, And, you know, a few years later, I was doing Out Magazine every year, does a sports issue, and this, 2011, they wanted to feature straight allies. And so I asked Michael, would you let me interview you for this gay men's magazine? And he said, sure, and we wanted to do a photo shoot, and... Michael knew exactly what he wanted to do. He wanted to talk about his gay brother. He wanted to talk about growing up Baptist and accepting gay people. He wanted to talk about his support for same-sex marriage. And he wanted to take his shirt off, pull his pants down to show his underwear, and be on the cover of a gay men's magazine because Michael knew that it would jumpstart conversations in the NFL like there had never been before. And, and he was right when that cover, when that image of I mean, Michael Irvin a man's man for the Dallas Cowboys on the cover of that magazine. It was sports center led one of their hours with that cover. And it really jumpstarted a conversation in the, in the locker rooms and among these straight athletes in the NFL where it hadn't existed. And once Michael did that and he talked about it for a day on his radio show and he went on NFL network and talked about why and talked about the importance of gay people, he quietly went, to the sidelines and quietly worked behind the scenes with power brokers he knew in sports, making sure that gay people had opportunities, but not being the face of the movement. And I thought that was, I, I talk about why he's the quintessential straight ally, because he knew, use your platform to jumpstart the conversation and then open the door for other people.
1: Mm. Yeah, I always like the line that a good ally is like a good offensive lineman. You're clearing space for other people, but if people are saying your name too much, it probably means you're doing something wrong.
2: And the fact that people have pretty much forgotten that happened, at the, it, it jump-started conversations. And and that people forget it, that, that Michael was a part of that, I think is really a, a testament to him. I think Scott Fajita is another one. I think people forget all the stuff that he did and all the conversations he had five, six years ago, because he, he, it worked. He opened the door for other people.
1: Wow. Hey, Sid Ziegler, the book is Fair Play, How LGBT Athletes Are Claiming Their Rightful Place in Sports. Sid Ziegler, thanks so much for joining us here on the podcast.
2: And, and and Dave, thank you for making this happen. It wouldn't have without you.
1: This was the easiest decision to make in the world. Hey, Sid, you want to do a book about LGBT athletes? And you nailed it. So thank you so much. I appreciate that. Talk to you soon, buddy. All right, thanks. Bye. Thank you so much, Sid Ziegler. Uh, the book is Fair Play, How LGBT Athletes Are Claiming Their Rightful Place in Sports. And to learn more about Sid and his work, just go to Outsports.com, one of the most important sports websites on the internet. And now instead of a Just Stand Up Award, I'm going to give a shout out to all the dads out there. Hope you had a good Father's Day. My Father's Day was kind of interesting. As a Jewish agnostic, I was asked to give the sermon at Plymouth Congregational Church, part of the United Church of Christ here in Washington, D.C. I really did this. This This is not a joke. I did a sermon in a church. The title was Muhammad Ali, Orlando, and the Light of Understanding, and we actually have audio of it. Thank you so much, Reverend Graylin Hagler at Plymouth Congregational Church. Reverend Hagler, truly one of the greatest people I've ever had the privilege to know. Let's hear the sermon. Let's go to church. Reverend Hagler asked me a couple of months ago to speak on this Father's Day, and I was shocked to get the invitation, to tell you the truth, because... I, I am a father. Uh, I do love my children, Sasha and Jake, sitting there in the second row. And, but honestly, I usually have nothing to say on Father's Day other than, please let me sleep in, Michelle. And <laughs> Michelle being my wife, I should be clear about that. But as I was really trying to figure out what to say over the last month about this just blessed experience of being a dad, the real world intervened and gave me a case of emotional whiplash. And it's one that relates very strongly to the feelings conjured by this day. Now, this this whirlwind has come for me personally from attending Muhammad Ali's funeral last Friday in Louisville, and then by Monday, 72 hours later, attending a vigil with my family in Washington, D.C., for the 49 people slaughtered in Orlando at the Pulse nightclub by a shooter driven by his own hatreds. It's a heck of a 72 hours, I'll tell you. And to bear the news about the deaths in Orlando was shattering enough, but to then see people like Donald Trump and a collection of just the worst bigots this society has to offer, be boastful and almost gleeful about this death, because the shooter happened to claim to be Muslim, made it all the worse. And now we have a situation where the goals of one hate-filled killer to divide us into enemy camps are being assisted by an entire Republican apparatus immune to the irony that they are carrying out this killer's dying wish. They want walls. They love their walls, don't they? They love walls. They want their walls, and they want everyone who looks like them and prays like them to stand guard on those walls, armed to the teeth with custom-made AR-15s brought to you by Walmart to make sure nobody gets inside. Now, as the news of Orlando fell on the shoulders of my family and into the consciousness of my 11-year-old and 8-year-old children, you know, news that I wish I could have shielded them from, but you can't shield children anymore. It's just not possible. The best we can do is explain to them. I kept thinking about Muhammad Ali. I could not forget what I experienced in Louisville just a few short days before, even though it already had seemed like years since I was in that moment of, of just peace and beauty in Louisville, saying that great goodbye. And I kept thinking about the line said by one of his eulogists that Muhammad Ali devoted the last half of his life, and this is the exact words he said, not to building walls, but bridges. These bridges these bridges are fragile, and that's really what makes them matter. And Reverend Hagler knows that better than anyone as someone who has built bridges from this church to labor, Palestinian, Native American, and the LGBT community. He'll be the first to tell you this is not easy work. It's hard work, but it's crucial to our future to be able to build these bridges. But I'll say it again, they are fragile, like love itself, and that's what makes them matter. If, they, if it was easy to do, it wouldn't matter. But it does so much, it matters for our future. In fact, it's so much easier, and I'm sure we've all known people like this in our own lives, it's so much easier to just stomp on these bridges or burn them down or live our life like we're hopelessly divided by the color of our skin, our gender, our religion, our sexuality, and then to pass that poison down to our children. It's all so awful, but I can really think of no better response to this tidal wave of hate than what I saw at Muhammad Ali's funeral in Louisville. It was a day when the world stopped to pay tribute to the most famous Muslim on earth and the most famous war resistor in the history of war. Now, even though the powerful and famous came to Louisville to say goodbye, this was a day planned by Muhammad Ali and his family over the course of 10 years for the people. And it really was all that. A 100,000 people lined the streets. Balloons were released into the sky. Handpicked bouquets of flowers were thrown upon his car as it made its 23-mile journey through the city. A school bus Full of children passed by and they poked their heads out of the window wearing their little public school uniforms and they shouted at the top of their lungs Ali, boom aye, like it was the rumble in the jungle all over again and people like myself who never got to actually see Muhammad Ali in person were able to give them that one last cheer as the car rolled by and experience saying those words Ali and there was a man by the way standing on the corner, I mean this is Louisville uh, wearing boxing shorts Just saying rhymes over and over again He's saying I hospitalized a rock I beat up a brick I'm so mean I make medicine sick Ah <laughs> And I went over And I had a dollar in my hand And I assumed he was doing it for that And I said Oh where's your hat I want to. This is amazing You're doing these impressions And he just looked at me And he said It's not for money brother It's for the champ And I said okay Now, if there was one thing I learned throughout that day, it's that Muhammad Ali was real to these people, whether it was the 100,000 lining the streets, the 22,000 who packed the free service at the basketball arena that happened later that day. I mean, he was able to talk to people and make a positive impression on everybody he met. He took that time to speak to people in a way that I think is so special and unique. Everybody had a story. Uh, Will Smith was there that day, the the fresh prince himself, who, of course, played Muhammad Ali in the 2001 film. And as the procession went by, Will Smith was in one of the cars, and he was leaning out the window, just giving everybody high fives. And you should have heard the people on the processional, they were like, Ali, Ali, oh, snap, Will Smith, Ali, Ali, oh, Will Smith, Ali. And it kind of surprised me, because from the little I knew about Will Smith, I know that he's a very private person. And here he is, leaning out of the car, giving everybody fives, and later that day, um, I heard him say, he, s- he said, yeah, that, that was definitely out of my comfort zone, but 10 years ago, I was with Muhammad Ali in Los Angeles, and he took my arm in his halting voice, and he said, Well, we got to go take the bus. And I said, champ, I don't want to take the bus, I'm going to get mobbed by people. And he said, Ali looked at him and said, you got to let the people touch you so they know you're real. But it was really the interfaith service where Ali's wife of 30 years, Yolanda, spoke the following truth. She said, My husband had this extraordinary sense of timing. His knack for being in the right place at the right time seemed to be ordained by a higher power. And I think we need desperately to recognize the timing of Muhammad Ali's passing, crossing the same weekend with this horror in Orlando. We need to remember the person who understood the importance of using his own funeral as a last act of resistance against the divisions that keep us apart for the benefit of the few. We need this example of someone who put it all on the line to resist this mindless violence that our society produces because I really do believe that will be our task in the immediate future. But I'd really like to end my remarks by bringing it back to Father's Day because while Ali's history was honored, Ali the father was honored as well a father of nine who made his living in the most violent sport we have, yet was man enough to change his daughter's diapers on request. And as we learned at his service, not only man enough, but human enough to act as a father figure to Malcolm X's daughters after he was murdered in 1965, doing so in private, even though the two men had had a very very public falling out after Malcolm left the Nation of Islam, and even though Muhammad's financial, personal, and emotional interaction with Malcolm's children could have cost him dearly. At the service in Louisville, Malcolm's daughter, Atala Shabazz, spoke, and I want to speak her words because they bring Muhammad Ali back to earth as someone we can emulate on this Father's Day, even if we couldn't knock down George Foreman on our best day or even be one half as pretty. This is what Atala Shabazz said, daughter of Malcolm X. She said, Muhammad Ali was one of a fraternity of amazing men bequeathed to me directly by my dad. From the very moment we found each other, it was as if no time had passed at all. Despite all the presumptions of division, despite all the efforts at separation, despite all the organized distancing, we dove right into all of the spaces we could explore and uncover privately. We cried out loud, and then just as loudly, we laughed. Then Atala Shabaz quoted the words of Muhammad Ali, and these are Muhammad's words. He said, we all have the same God. We just serve him differently. Rivers, lakes, ponds, streams, oceans all have different names, but they all contain water. So do religions have different names, and yet they all contain truth, truth expressed in different ways and forms and times. doesn't matter whether you're a Muslim, a Christian, or a Jew. When you believe in God, you should believe that all people are part of one family, for if you love God, you can't only love some of his children. And finally, Atala Shabaz. she ended with the following. She said, Love is a mighty thing. Devotion is a mighty thing. And truth always reigns. Having Muhammad Ali in my life somehow sustained my dad's breath for me just a little while longer. 51 years longer. Until now. My dad would often state when concluding or parting from one another, may we meet again in the light of understanding. And I say to you, may we find that light of understanding by any means necessary. The light of understanding. I keep thinking about those words, the light of understanding. I hope on this day, after all of this tragedy, we can all pledge to devote our lives to finding it and using it to stay warm in a world that too often feels cold. It's so easy to stay satisfied in the cold, in the shadows, in the margins, to treat our petty hatreds like a security blanket that keeps us warm, even though all it does is chill our hearts. So let us pledge, please, to remove the blankets and the blinders. Let us pledge to be like Muhammad Ali and reach out to all the children in our lives, who need a coach, who need a friend, who need just a kind word. That's a task for all of us, not just the men in the room, but about all of us who can reach out to the people who are the most vulnerable and just tell them that in this cold world they are not alone, and we can help bring them into the light of understanding. And let us pledge in the name of not just Muhammad Ali, not just the people of Orlando, but everyone in our lives, who's sick or hurting or lost or gone, who we are trying to bring back close to our heart. Let us pledge to search for them going forward in that light of understanding. Thank you very much.
0: Amen. 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 You know they inside of every real activist is a good preacher. Amen. <laughs>
1: So, yeah, so that was me speaking to church. Uh, thank you so much, Sid Ziegler. Thank you, my producer, Dan Bloom. Big shout-out to the people of Cleveland. If you want to contact me, Dave Zirin, you can contact me at edgeofsports at slate.com or on Twitter at edgeofsports. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash And please, if you like the show, subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. And if you want to listen to any back episodes of the Edge of Sports podcast, including all the remarkable work we've done about Muhammad Ali, especially our trip to Louisville uh, for his funeral a couple Fridays back, you can go to edgeofsportspodcast.com. For Dan Bloom, I'm Dave Zirin. We are out of here. Peace.